Hello, this is Adam from American Moments, and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, because uh, we are actually doing a collaboration with the infamous Royfield Brown, the producer of 10 American Presidents, which is actually how we got our start in podcasting to begin with. If you're not familiar with his show, he highlights 10 American Presidents as well as several key elections, and we are doing one of those elections today, the election of 1800, which was a pivotal moment in the United States history as it was a peaceful transfer of power between the two rival political parties in a very acrimonious election. So please enjoy as Matt and I were very, very honored to be a part of the show. And you can check out Royfield's other work. He has some other great podcasts around the history of Jamaica called How Jamaica Conquered the World, as well as some current events podcasts called Mid-Atlantic, which analyzes politics on both sides of the Atlantic from the perspectives of the UK and the US respectively. But enough talking for me. Enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The United States presidential election of 1800 was the fourth time Americans had gone to the polls to elect their head of state. It was held from Friday, October 31st to Wednesday, December the 3rd. It is sometimes referred to as the Revolution of 1800. The election saw Vice President Thomas Jefferson defeat President John Adams. It was a realigning election. It ushered in a generation of Democratic Republican Party rule and the eventual demise of the Federalist Party. Today I'm joined by Adam Vanami and Matt Martin to discuss this most peaceful transfer of power and the most rancorous of elections. Hello gentlemen, how are we? Good, how are you doing? Hello, great here. We're calling this a peaceful transfer of power? Well, it was, wasn't it? There was no call to arms. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess, the press if that's our barometer, I guess that's what we'll go off of. Adam, could you tell us about the America of 1800? So the America of 1800 was very agrarian. It was a lot of a, a lot of farming lifestyle. This is very much pre-industrial revolution. The move to the cities haven't, haven't happened yet. The best way I heard it described was it was more akin to Rome a thousand years ago than even America 50 years later when, when the railroad boom happens. The, the Romans had more infrastructure in place as far as paved roads had, had back then. And most Americans never really even left their county or their town. So it was very much focused on farming your, your goods and uh, getting them to market. You know, additionally, in the 24 years since independence was declared, the population had exponentially grown. In fact, the average birth per female was seven live births per female in America at that time. 
I, I don't want to think about the logistics of that, but that's uh, that, that's a lot of population boom. Yep, there was a lot of joy going around. Yeah, I guess so. In the new nation. Yeah. And, ob- and obviously at that point, uh, America had just kind of come through the quasi-war. Um, could you describe its relations with France and with Britain? I guess we'll, we'll take Britain first. So we, today we look at Britain as, as having a special relationship. And after the, the Revolutionary War, we had this hangover of kind of everything British was bad and everything the Federalists kind of cling to as wanting to have a centralized, stable government was labeled as British unfairly. You know, Hamilton wanting to have a centralized bank, anything as far as infrastructure funded by the government, everything as far as wanting to have a navy, a standing army was labeled as British. And that was pretty much the first, uh, that was our relations with the British, but we were trying to normalize things a bit there. Now the French Revolution has happened by this point and it was bloody. The Democrat Republicans had looked at this as an extension of our revolution, akin to the way maybe that the Soviets did in uh, 1918, where they looked at uh, the the Bolshevik Revolution as a, as a world revolution. and. Jefferson, Madison, these guys looked at it as our duty to support France in in their revolution. And it, their revolution turned very bloody. And in, in kind of France's defense, the quasi-war started because we decided that since the monarchy was gone, we didn't need to pay our loans back to France. The Evening Mail, 19 September, 1798, Wednesday. It is ever pleasing to have occasion to remark on the prompt readiness of our fellow citizens to contribute to the support of measures of defense. In no instance has a greater degree of this spirit shown itself than assisting at the fortifications now almost completed on the battery, where the labor of all ranks has been in daily exercise, from 40 to 70 a day. The Americans begin to know their resources, strength, and importance and to display a proper spirit. They had so long been treated with contempt and contumely that they even began to think meanly of themselves. But the multiplied, barefaced atrocities of the French, together with the representations and indignant exhortations of our eagle-eyed and undaunted atoms, have at length roused the sleeping energies of our countrymen. About one million of dollars have been voted for fortifying harbors and purchasing cannon, small arms, ammunition, and military stores. 13,000 men have been raised as a regular standing army during the present dispute with France. If actual hostilities commence, 10,000 are to be added, and besides these, 80,000 militia are ordered to be ready at a moment's warning nor have we been less spirited in naval exertions. When the armament now ordered is complete, we shall have at sea nine large frigates, twelve sloops of war, from twenty to twenty-four guns, six from sixteen to eighteen, about ten cutters, and as many galleys, making in all forty-eight ships of war. No inconsiderable force for the first effort of a nation, which three months ago had not an armed vessel afloat. To this account may be added a stout frigate or two from nine or ten states as a voluntary loan to government. 
when we look at this and then turn our eye to the astonishing unanimity and zeal exhibited in favor of governance, we may view with contempt the threats of the terrible republic. So you've introduced Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, why don't you introduce all the main players in the election of 1800 and then also describe uh, the breakdown of the two political parties. Our constitution very naively did not reflect or account for political parties. And the founding fathers had a high-minded ideal that men should be above party and that there should be no factionalism. Everyone should consider a, a, an issue on its merits and proceed accordingly. And again, this is incredibly naive, but the most naive person out of this whole thing was George Washington. And and he he basically kept his cabinet together. I had Jefferson on one side, Hamilton on the other, and Adams as vice president. And he wanted to really keep the petty factionalism aside and even warned against it in his retirement speech. But by this point, Adams was not officially a Federalist in, in 1796 when he was elected. However, he's very much a centrist and him and Jefferson have started breaking. So the, the, there's been a lot of dinner parties and a lot of attempts at collaboration between the two camps. But by this point, it's been pretty recognized that they can't really see eye to eye and have this idealistic vision of founding fathers. And that really kind of the, the creation of political parties really caused issues from that perspective. So the, the first one is the, is the most obvious, which is the sitting president, John Adams. Uh, he's the second president of the United States, a fascinating character. We could do a whole podcast on just his life prior to being a president. Uh, he had been ambassador to, he was the first ambassador to Britain. He was an envoy in, in France two times. And he had gone to the, the Dutch to try to secure key loans during the revolution and traveled back and forth to Philadelphia and New York, you know, many, many times. I think he's probably the most well-traveled American at the time. So anyway, John Adams is very much, he's kind of a stubborn old goat, I guess for lack of a better term. Mm He's uh, he prior to being the president, he was the vice president, which was the worst possible job for him. For a guy who was a great orator and loved to talk, he basically had to sit and uh, and just point to people and tell them when it's their turn to to talk when he provides. So for those of us who don't know what the vice president does, is they're the president pro tem, so they they preside over the Senate, which means you're just sitting there and your your real role is to tell what people when to talk, and your only real role is if you're a tie-breaking vote. So Adams basically had to sit through four years of just sitting and watching other people talk, which must have been terrible. So he's he's had some issues. So he made a, a, a blunder of having, of keeping Washington's cabinet, which he thought was a unifying a, a unifying thing, but he had some real people who did not, not see eye to eye with him. You mentioned the quasi-war. There was a lot of pressure from Hamilton to have a standing army. And that, again, you have to put yourself back in a time, was looked at as tyranny. You're dealing with an America that has had to quarter troops against their will. (laughs) And this is looked at as tyranny of the masses. And there's very much this idealistic, egalitarian, romanticism, farmer lifestyle America that the Democrat Republicans want. And then you have Hamilton on the other side, who, although he's kind of a jerk, he understands what uh, what that the realities of needing to be able to fight a war against France, if need be. 
the the most controversial thing that happens to Adams is the Aliens and Sedition Acts. The president is hereby empowered to designate as alien enemies any citizens or subjects of hostile nations <laughs> residing in the United States whose presence he regards as dangerous and make regulations for their apprehension, restraint, or removal. It shall be a crime to utter or publish writings against the government of the United States with intent to defame or bring it into contempt and disrepute. So because of officially, officially, I'm doing my air quotes for Woodfield, because of the quasi-war, we pass the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically allows to do two things. One of which is basically deport any, unilaterally deport any foreigner that we we deem to be dangerous now now this you know adam just to just to play on that you know mm-hmm. where this tension was created was um you know thomas jefferson was um a republican mm-hmm. you know pro-french he was a minister in france mm-hmm. um and this this alien and sedition act um was really intended i don't know if it was necessarily intended but it was really used against French foreigners mm-hmm. in the country. Well, do you know you know who Citizen Genet was? So at early in uh, in Washington's term, you had this is at right after the French Revolution really takes off. This so where the, the French Revolution happens early in Washington's mm-hmm. term, and Citizen Genet was a Frenchman who was the ambassador to the United States, and instead of going straight to Washington and, and presenting himself, lands in South Carolina, has parades. He has all kinds of people, you know, basically throwing him ticker tape parades and starts basically trying to recruit American citizens to serve in the in the in the revolutionary French Marine. So France is looked at as kind of a rabble rouser. This guy was just very blatantly disrespectful. So there's that kind of pressure as as far as that, but that's that's bad enough. But this, the one of our First Amendment rights, freedom of speech. Basically, we can decide that we don't. That if President Adams doesn't like what someone's saying, he can he can jail them. And there's just nothing good about this. I mean, from a modern perspective, I mean, you have to put yourself back in the time. And looking back on it, 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 we know it as a blunder now. But the real reasons that a lot of people think that this happened is even worse. Because if we think the press is bad today, back then it was horrible. But they just said the most god-awful things about each other. And there was um, there was a gentleman by the name of James Callender who was kind of later we would call him uh, you know yellow journalist. But he would just make up anything possible, and they would slander, uh, they would slander their their opponents. And the Republican rags, uh, James Calender ran one of these and criticized the Adams presidency. And at Jefferson's request, he published an anti-federalist paper called "The Prospect Before Us," where he talks about Adams' tyranny and just how you know all these kind of hysterical names, but at the time were really insulting. And at this point. Adams has just had it, and and basically this this law was crafted to go after guys like this, and they do process they do prosecute Calender, and they exclude the vice president. This is how base and open this this act was. Right. I mean, when it was passed and after it was passed, basically everyone tried war Republicans. Mm-hmm. You know, so so the the law alone, many of the people in his cabinet felt it was tyrannical. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes against what our constitution had declared as the Bill of Rights. 
I'm going to, I don't know if I agree with that. So his cabinet members, I think Adam's biggest problem was his cabinet members. And he kept a lot of his old, uh, a lot of Washington's old cabinet members, like Mm -hmm. Pickering and and those guys like that, they gave him some pretty bad advice and he, and he felt, and he had to dismiss some of them. I, I think if he had picked a better cabinet, he may have been steered differently on this. When I say his cabinet, I'm more oh. speaking about his vice president. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Okay, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, you know, who, again, is a, is a strong Republican. Yeah. And feels that this the, this Alien and Sedition Act is going against the French. Yeah, so this and was... Republicans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is primarily pointed at James Callender. And they end up uh, giving him a $200 fine and a six-month prison sentence. But this Jefferson releasing Calender kind of comes home to roost against him because he's actually the one who ends up breaking the, the Sally Hemings story uh, later. And uh, finally, before we move off on on Calender, he's the one who effectively ruined Hamilton as a political candidate. So he, he was the one who exposed the Maria Reynolds affair. And Hamilton wasn't necessarily he, he became the godfather of the Federalist Party I, I, I kind of refer to it as but he didn't want that mm-hmm. I mean he still had political ambitions but this pretty much deep sixed him uh, you know from ever being able right. to publicly hold office and um, so those, those are the, the pressures that really push this act over the edge so if we're looking at the end of the term of Adams as president we have the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans basically um, fighting each other through the press. Would that be a fair way to sum things up? Because technically speaking, they're all part of the same government, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. It was dirty. I mean, if you think if you followed our election, how dirty that was, this was even dirtier. I mean, there were, as Adam mentioned, there were these rags out there, numerous papers in every city. These rags, which were political political, either they were a Federalist rag or a Republican rag, would publish these stories, these salacious stories about the candidates. I mean, there were some that went as far as to say that the candidate had died. So I I mentioned George Washington. He was unofficially a Federalist. Um, By by this point, I mean, Washington had seen, and and if you want some good background on this, I'm not going to go into this. You should listen to the episode about uh, George Washington, where he really sees the struggles of what happens when you don't have a strong centralized government. So he's become a Federalist by this point, and he's loved. Uh, Can't stand Jefferson by the end of his term. Uh, Delegated a lot of, uh, of his authority to the next Federalist we'll talk about, which is Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was the Secretary of the Treasury. He gets close to Washington during the, the Revolutionary War. He was his aide-de-camp, and he, um, towards the end of his uh, Washington's presidency, presidency, starts getting more and more authority handed to him, and to the point where, during Adams' presidency, he get basically gets made the commander of the army, and Adams is in the in the position where he can thumb his nose at Washington, which he can't do even in retirement, mm-hmm. um, and has to deal with Hamilton. You know, and, a, and an interesting point on ha- Hamilton. Um, I was I read an article about Hamilton in George Washington's cabinet, mm-hmm. and um, you know they are Federalists, right? Mm-hmm. They're pro English. Really, the way it was set up was George Washington was the figurehead. You know mm-hmm. the 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 monarchy. The, yeah. You know, and um, Alexander Hamilton 
really took on the role as the P, the the uh, the PM, the William Pitt and, right. and King George. Right. Type I mean, dynamic. He, yeah. He he chose which office he had. Yeah. You know, he helped decide which what those offices were going to be mm-hmm. that were going to create the government. Yeah. So I mean, he really was the father of. Yeah. I mean, it's the Federalist I approach. Mean, if he wasn't so cantankerous, right. he, might have, he might have gotten some more. But he does have a musical named after. He has a great musical. Movie and and uh, one of the best insults I've ever heard um, was Adams called him the bastard son of a Scotch peddler, mm-hmm. and I, I'm going to try to figure out a way to to throw that into my vernacular sometime soon. <laughs> but so the last one, we'll we'll, we'll get to this briefly, um, and and we'll get into the, and this will play into the dynamics of the, the election as it plays out. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Um, and he's a favorite son of Southern politicians. Hartford Current, Hartford, Connecticut, Monday, December 8, 1800. Extract of a letter from Colonel Wade Hampton of South Carolina to Colonel Holmfin, Virginia, dated Columbia, November 11, 1800. The Federalists in Charleston have made extraordinary exertions lately in favor of General Pinckney and have turned their views to every part of the state. Major Butler and his colleagues, because they are Republicans, have by a maneuver been shut out. The change is not so alarming as to numbers, but I think there will be a want of nerve to resist the pretensions of General Pinckney. Mr. Jefferson will have every vote here, but there is great danger that General Pinckney will also. We did have running mates, really. So there, there was. Uh, we'll get into the dynamics of the actual vote. But you, you had two votes for president. It, the the Federalist plan, for lack of a better term, was Adams first, Pinckney second. Pinckney becomes kind of. He really takes the high road. But the, 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 there's two forces in this election. One is party, and one is region. And the Southerners start start trying to uh, use their their second vote to maybe elevate Pinckney as a backstop. And Pinckney takes the high road and says, "No, if you vote first, you're going to vote for Adams." And he becomes kind of a distraction. But th- those are our main Federalists. So we've got the Republicans or the Democratic Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, they were known as the Republicans, but this is not the Republican Party we see today in America. No. So it is the Democratic Republic Party. Uh, we've got probably the leader of that, who is Thomas Jefferson, obviously one of the founding fathers. Um, he really was the head of the revolution. He was the embodiment of enlightenment. He was from Virginia. He was heavily involved in writing the Articles of the Confederation and also the Constitution itself. So under Washington, he was the Secretary of State. Um, Okay, so the next uh, Democratic Republican that plays a part in this election is James Madison. I would say Alexander Hamilton is to federalism as James Madison is to republicanism. At this point, he's very Republican. Now, an interesting fact, as you mentioned about James James Madison, is that 20 years earlier, he was a Federalist, and he wrote the Federalist Papers that really were um, the basis for the Constitution, which is, you know, a stronger central government. Okay. But at this point, James Madison is buddy buddy with Tom with TJ Tom Jefferson, and really believed that government was only needed for liberty and security. Um, so he was strongly in the Republican camp. Um, additionally, there is James Monroe, who is another politician, founding father from Virginia. He has a similar background to Thomas Jefferson. He was also the minister of France and the governor of Virginia. Um, and an interesting fact about Monroe is when Monroe Uh, was the minister of France. It was in George Washington's cabinet. And George Washington called him back 
um, from France because he couldn't convince the French that the J uh, the Jay Treaty was good for the French, even though it was not good for the French. <laughs> I can't argue that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So he had bad feelings towards George Washington, obviously Alexander Hamilton, and the Federalists. So Tom, Tom Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe really are the, the Republican founding fathers. And after 1800, they all become presidents of the United States, one right after the other. Then the fourth person that we need to talk about, who was a... Federalist at one point and then a Democratic Republican at another point is Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr is a New, is a New York attorney. Um, he is he really is a founding father. I don't know if today in history people consider him a founding father. He's really known more for shooting Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was an, initially a Federalist and then switched to Democratic Republican, but not because of his views, because of his, his opportunity that he sees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you may be wondering, Royfield, why do we talk about James Monroe? Because he's not really president for a long time. But he becomes, at this time, he's the governor of Virginia, which becomes very important uh, later in our story. Right. Okay. All right. So so we have the setup. Um, you did kind of briefly mention this, but there's going to be um, somewhat of a quirk in this election as to how it all kind of plays out. But... Back in 1800, we don't have anything like a universal franchise. Could you tell us who was eligible to vote in in 1800 and how exactly um, those electoral uh, college seats are going to be apportioned by the states? So going back, um, because things were starting to loosen up by 1800, there was there was a land requirement. Um, So you had to to be a landholder to to vote. You also had to be white and male. Fair. Yeah, fair. Yes. Um, which, which we'll get to in a second. One um, percent of the population voted in 1796, and Americans today think of our country as a democracy, and we're not. We're a republic. We, we were looked at at we looked at our country as 13 interests that would pool together as they made sense, and there was so much more emphasis on the states having sovereignty on how they elected their president. So in, in 1787, the three-fifth compromise is it is agreed to in Congress. So the Southerners said, you know what, we, we don't want these slaves to have their rights, but I'll be damned if I'm not going to get my electoral votes, you know, because, because of this. Of yeah, exactly. Right. So the in 1796, in Adams' election, the black vote didn't matter at all. In 1800, there's I think 11 additional electoral votes out there um, because of because of the yeah. compromise, the three-fifth compromise. Yes. So the three-fifth compromise basically counted black slaves as um, three-fifths of a person in counting population for each state yeah. to determine how many electoral votes each state gets. Yeah. So, for example, Virginia and Massachusetts have the same population of white citizens. And Virginia also has a about – I think it's about a one-third – um, slave population. So um, as a result of the three-fifths compromise, the, the two states that had the same number of electorals now, um, Massachusetts has 16 and Virginia has 21. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big swing. So it's the black vote, not that, not that, not that the black slaves are voting, but they're counted towards those electoral counts. Yeah, yeah. And then so what, what also kind of – so there – again, we have this this idealistic vision of what our – our electors should be doing, but the, the the pre-election posturing really starts happening on a state level. So 
10 of the states appoint electors by their state legislatures, right? So the state legislatures are voted in by the, the, the average, you know, the common voter, and then the state legislatures pick, pick the electors. It's not even done at the polls, right? I think it's actually 11. Uh, uh, well, uh, 10 or 11. Um, we'll, we'll figure, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll firm that up. Yeah. Uh, so Kentucky, Maryland, and North Carolina had districts and divided up their, their votes accordingly. Uh, Rhode Island and Virginia were chosen by the voters, and Georgia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire changed election laws uh, because they looked at their their local politics and said, you know what, uh, it's more advantageous for the Republican Party to, you know, do winner take all because uh, famously New York had a, a big move to the Republican, uh, a Democrat Republican Party, and Aaron Burr was a big part of it. And they, they figured we're at a tipping point where we have a majority. Let's go to the state house and do winner take all. And they did the same thing in Virginia. James Monroe famously did so in Virginia to a winner take all approach. And that hurt Adams greatly. So you in the actual election. So you have all this pre-election posturing it happens in Pennsylvania as well. Massachusetts happens as well, which actually kind of blew up in the Federalist face because they had uh, because the, the Republicans actually took a couple a couple seats. Right. But you have all this, and, and we don't have Twitter, we don't have CNN back then. So these guys were kind of putting their fingers up in the air and corresponding with each other over, you know, at the uh, pace of horseback to try to do this. So this is all kind of happening in in in, uh, in advance. The Gleaner, Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, Monday, December eighth, eighteen hundred. Pennsylvania Legislature, the Legislature of Pennsylvania have at length agree to the appointment of electors. Their conditions, each house to nominate eight candidates, out of which 15 electors are to be chosen. Consequently, eight will be Republican and seven federal. Okay, and then could you just explain to us before we get into how exactly the various candidates went about electioneering? Tell us exactly how electors could actually vote for uh, the president and vice president. How did that process actually work back then? Well, they, they didn't vote for president and vice president. So they had two votes and both were for president. And And the thought process behind this were the politicians were supposed to be above party again. The thought process behind this very in a very naive sense was that there would be favorite sons locally. Like, so there, people would know their local favorite candidates, right? And they would vote for, they, they would vote one presidential vote for that. So you did, so, and so if it was just, or if we're in a world where it's just CC Pinckney and John Adams, you would have the, the South Carolinians, Carolinians would vote for CC Pinckney, but they'd also vote for Adams. Yes. Right. So, I mean, the intent was that those two votes were cast mm-hmm. and the, the candidate with the most, Electoral votes obviously becomes president, mm-hmm. and the second place finisher becomes vice president. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't that there weren't tickets. Mm-hmm. I mean, there really weren't, but there were two Democratic Republicans running and two Federalists running. Mm-hmm. So the thought was, you know, if the country goes Federalist, then you've got a Federalist VP and president. That's the way it's supposed to go. Correct. And what ends up happening is. The uh, and, and you look at the, the election before where Adams really wins by one electoral vote. That's because party discipline starts needing to happen. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into the election of 1800. But if everyone votes for for uh, for Adams and Pinckney equally, well, you have a tie. 
you have a, a crisis, you go to the House of Representatives. So you needed to coordinate with other states to have what's called a throwaway vote, where one, one of the electors will vote for some random guy so you don't have the tie. The Federalists were good at this. Unfortunately for our story, the Democrat Repub- Democratic Republicans were not. Okay. All right. So it's, uh, it's the election of 1800. I'm presuming that there were no battle buses, there, were, there was no jetting around the United States, and that the candidates didn't really travel outside of their own state even. How exactly did they electioneer? If Thomas Jefferson wins, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will be openly taught and practiced. The air will be rent with the cries of the distressed. The soil will be soaked with blood and the nation black with crimes. Are you prepared to see your dwellings in flames, female chastity violated, children writhing on a pike? I'm John Adams, and I approve this message because Jefferson is the son of a half-breed Indian squaw raised on hoe cakes, and Hamilton is a Creole bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. Before the, the parties became very blatantly obvious, there, there was a lot of quote-unquote summits, where I think there, there was one where Jefferson went upstate New York to quote-unquote take in the trees, but it was actually a, a Republican, a Democratic Republican meeting. A lot of correspondence uh, by mail. Yeah, and, and I mean, to to go back to what we were talking about earlier, that there's these political rags. That's what the public is seeing, right? Because mm-hmm. you are traveling all over. You're seeing what these rags are saying about each of the other candidates. And in this election, it is dirty politicking. I mean, mm-hmm. by the time the election occurred, neither – I'm surprised anyone wanted to vote for either party or any of the candidates because based on those rags, America was going to fall apart. Well, and you got to also remember, these guys didn't have to necessarily write under their own name. These guys would, these guys would ghost sure. write articles, and it, it became obvious to a lot of them who it was. But it, information, you know, didn't didn't flow fast. But in the major metropolitan areas, you'd have multiple rags, and it, there was just no accountability for what they had to say. So, but but it's fair to say though that at that time. If you were running to be president, you couldn't seem to be actively campaigning. That was seen oh, absolutely as... correct. Yeah, right. it, Jefferson would always say, "I am going to retire to Monticello." And, <laughs> and, 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 and in in uh, seventeen ninety six, he probably would have won the, the presidency if he actually campaigned a little harder than he did. But you know, these guys had to have it. Right. It was very much a Roman. They no, were, no, no, no. They were gentlemen. Yeah, they were right. gentlemen. So yeah. you don't actively campaign. Correct. Yeah. Okay, so before we actually get up to the vote in late October all the way through November, were there any key uh, issues specifically that they were campaigning on as opposed to just against each other, just kind of throw throw dirt at each other? What were those campaign issues of that election? Well, so the the key ones, we, we got into the Alien and Sedition, which I think is the biggest one. And did they want to just get that repealed by then? Well, so it was it was scheduled to uh, sunset in 1801. One of them was actually the Alien Acts is still in effect today, albeit changed uh, somewhat. But they were supposed to sunset in uh, in 1801. The another issue it, it, I mentioned the taxes to fund the, the quasi war. So we're used to April 15th being a, a big deal here, and you know a lot being taken out of our paycheck. This is. This is prior to the national income tax. I mean, we're having whiskey rebellions. We're having Shays rebellions. 
over taxes, over funding issues, things like that. And any tax, especially to raise a standing army in a Navy to, to, and this is again, a very federalist thing. It is, you know, and, and to piggyback on that, I mean, that, that's a great point. There, there is a, there, there's an issue of whether we have a standing army and Navy versus mm-hmm. disbanding it. There's a, there's a question about whether we have a central bank that's mm-hmm. assuming the yep. debt of yep. these of our states from yeah. the revolution. Absolutely, yeah. Jefferson looked at, and the uh, Democratic Republicans looked at the at, at a centralized bank, and I can kind of see how and, and why that they did that because you know British Empire, you know, if a very mer- mercantilistic thought, mm-hmm. mercantilistic thought, <laughs> uh, was was very much at, at the root of what kind of chapped the the colonists hide. And Hamilton and Adams battled over this bitterly, and uh, Adams really took George Washington to heart, keeping out of foreign conflicts. But Hamilton started working against Adams, and even had George Washington co-opt him, and you know worked against Adams almost as much as Jefferson over this issue. And again, as as I mentioned, ironically, the Democratic Republicans didn't want to have a standing army or a navy, but they wanted us to help France out. Right. But but not pay back our war loans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just very contradictory. Brit- British favoritism is kind of an extension of that. You know, we're we're still kind of in, in the hangover from the revolution. Adams is very very much on the Federalist train at this point. I, I think he was a great centrist. I think he just was very cantankerous and unlikable in a lot of ways. But I think he was really trying to toe the line well. From on the on the Jefferson side, the big issue with him was he was kind of. A deist, and we're, that's a different podcast. But well, but he was kind of looked at as as anti-religious, and and the Federalists painted him as atheist. Yeah, you know, and and just to back what you were saying about Adams, you know, I would I would say that Adams actually moved more towards the center to try to appeal to the the entire country. But at the at the same time, his his ally at, Hamilton was really a high Federalist and believed in the Federalist views. And um, his and Adams' move to the center really pissed at Hamilton off. I mean, he, you know, they had their personal issues, obviously, but ha- Hamilton started to try to actually get a different person elected as president. C.C. Um, Pinkney. Yep, C.C. Yeah. Pinkney, exactly. And what happened was that it kind of backfired. There's actually a uh, a, a modernized election. Uh, commercial style where they take verbatim what these guys said in the, in these newspapers mm-hmm. and it's hysterical and it's terrible. John Adams is a blind, bald, crippled, toothless man who wants to start a war with France. While he's not busy importing mistresses from Europe, he's trying to marry one of his sons to a daughter of King George. Haven't we had enough monarchy in America? I'm Thomas Jefferson, and I approve this message because John Adams is a hideous, hermaphroditical character with neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. But the the real breaking point happens when Adams decides that he is not going to raise the army to to fight France. And he said, quote unquote, screaming. And I think HBO does a really good job of this and John Adams dramatizing the scene. That we are as likely to find a French army on these shores as we are on the moon. You dream of empire, Mr. Hamilton. You question my loyalties. Oh no, Mr. Hamilton, I question your sanity. Now either you are stuck raving mad or I am. Good day, sir. And Hamilton 
was done with them at this point. So back in 1800, you know, the, there is no telephone, there's not even a telegraph. How exactly did leading figures of the time actually exchange ideas? How is a cut and thrust of political debate and, and how were ideas formed and argued against in that period in American history? Almost everything was done via letter between the candidates, between the political leaders of the country. And I mean, a lot of our history that we see now, um, the history we know is from those letters. Yeah, and, and you have to think of logistics back at that point. So today, the president's full-time in Washington, D.C. Back then, these guys would have legislative sessions, and Adams would retire to Peacefield, which was his his um, his his home in Massachusetts. And the, the, he would get his correspondence brought up to him by Ryder. And it was really tough for him to keep his finger on the pulse a lot of times because he would, quote-unquote, the, the gentlemanly way of putting it was, I will remove myself to Peacefield. I will remove myself to Monticello. And for some, sometimes it was a really good reason. Like there was yellow fever in the Capitol and it was not a really great time to be there. But these guys would have a legislative session and John Adams was just really in love with Abigail. She was his force and his rock and she kept him grounded. So he would a lot of times spend the summers up there. And so there you cannot put a, a price on how much this letter writing helped and it really does help us from a modern perspective and especially after afterwards when Adams and Jefferson start writing letters after they reconcile I mean it's just it's amazing right. how uh, you know the the value is from a historical perspective that these things are so it's 1800 and you've described America of the time in terms of the feel the issues of the time but what exactly was America in terms of its states and territories back then? And, and even where was the capital? Because it's not in Washington, D.C. back then. By this point, we would have added Vermont, uh, Kentucky and Tennessee from the original colonies. The capital is in Philadelphia. And as part one of the, the, the compromises that actually got the Constitution ratified was the fact that the capital was in New York and that made a lot of the southern states very uneasy because New York was the financial capital of the United States and you don't want to have the political capital up there. So a deal had been struck that a new district, the District of Columbia, would actually be constructed and it was starting to be under construction during Adams' presidency. He actually moves from Philadelphia to become the first resident of the White House. And that, I mean, that that piece of land, it's worth noting, is, is really in the middle of the country a piece of Maryland and a piece of Virginia. Adams, during his only term, the District of Columbia is completed and him and Abigail become the first residents of the capital of Washington, D.C. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So America in 1800 is the eastern seaboard with Kentucky and Tennessee. What does the rest of the future United States of America look like back then? We, we've thrown off the yoke of quote-unquote British tyranny, right? But there's still a lot of empire hangover. Benevolent rule, sir. Benevolent rule. <laughs> Benevolent rule, yes. You're correct, correct. Um, we still have the – in French, although they're a republic, they have a lot of land holdings. The Louisiana Purchase is not part of the United States yet. So when you get to the Mississippi, it's French. And then, right. and then, and then a very kind of 
which really covers, I mean, the middle of America. It does. From New Orleans to the Canadian border. And then when you get to Colorado, which is where we are right now, uh, it it changes over to a Spanish possession. So you have everything. So you have uh, British Canada, and then it runs down to where we think of Washington being today. And then um, Northern California, kind of that, that's where the, the Spanish uh, the Spanish holdings start. And so you have the Spanish Empire and you have the French Republic uh, basically taking everything west of the Mississippi. And then you have Spanish Florida. So we're not even so Georgia is where the southern terminus of uh, right. you know the United States is of that point. So before we go on to uh, the results, uh, let's go into a little bit of detail about actually the mechanics of the states and actually how they're going to vote. Um, Tell us about those mechanics, please. Sure. So um, as we mentioned, there's 16 states at this point. Um, Within those 16 states, there's 134 electoral votes that will decide who the president is. Those electorals are part of the electoral college. And Adam, you you touched on this before, but um, 11 of the states choose their electoral college from the state legislature. So there's really no input from the population itself, except for the election of that legislature. Um, The other five are done by popular vote. Those electorals then, um, as we mentioned, will cast two votes. The idea being the candidate with the most votes will be president and the candidate with the second amount will be vice president. And, and and they don't have a standard election. So again, the the, the thing is, is you have the states are holding jealously onto their power to do things the way they want. So voting takes place over months, right? And there's rumors and and of what's happening down in South Carolina and what's happening in Rhode Island and things like that. And and so it's not just uh, okay. It's the first Tuesday in November. Let's let's tune into CNN. This is happening over a long period of time. So all these you got to think of again back to the letter writing, all the correspondence, all the all the machinations locally, and you have delegations internally. So not everyone's on the same page, uh, you know, from from that perspective uh, in their in their own state. So there there's a lot of it's a very drawn out election process. Uh, A because of the way that the uh, of the times. B because of the logistics of the times. And C, because the states are so jealously holding on to the way that that we that that they do it. And D, because we're a republic. Again, we got to go back to the fact that we are not a democracy. This is not a, a, a direct election. This is the, the we looked at the French Revolution as rabble. You know, democracy as as a rabble, unorganized, ungentlemanly. We looked at ourselves as above that. So part of that is control over it. it not allowing the the normal you know average citizen to have as much say as we like to think our American dream is. Is that a good way of putting it, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. I mean, I think one one more thing that's important as a setup for the actual election is um, if no majority, if no candidate has a majority selected, then the selection of the president goes to the House of Representatives. Yes. Yes. Which at this point is. The, the midterm elections or the elections have happened and the House is going to change to Democrat Republican majority. But, but what the, under the rules of the Constitution, if it goes to the House, it has to go to the House as constituted during the year of the election, which is heavily federalist and sets up what the story we're going to get into in a minute. 
how exactly did those 4% of Americans actually go and vote in that election? Where did they turn up to to cast their ballots? Well, some some of them in in the in the in the eleven states. Matt thinks it's eleven. I think it's ten. But uh, they uh, they actually didn't. So the state the state uh, uh, legislatures appointed the electors. So they were represented by virtue of the fact that they had voted for their state legislatures. And you know, but there were like Rhode, Rhode Island and Virginia uh, were chosen by by the voters. Uh, so they, they would go to, uh, they would, a lot, there was a lot of caucusing at this time too, Royfield. So we, we think of the ballot box, there's a lot of caucuses, which are, are kind of open uh, debates where you take straw polls and you, you, you come to consensus, you, d- you debate. Right. Um, and, uh, and then there's Kentucky, Maryland, and North Carolina where, where people voted up and, uh, and voted by districts. But there, there was a, an amalgamation of voting, caucusing, things like that. But again, every state wanted to be able to do it their own way. And that's the way it is today, actually. That's why we have caucus states and we have, uh, you know, primary Mm -hmm. election states. The vote takes place. Tell us about the results. We have to separate this into two distinct elections, right? So the first one is between Adams and Jefferson. And opinion polls, I mean, the the popular vote was was pretty slanted towards... uh, Republicans. Yeah, exactly. And the, the the actual election was, I think he lost by, what, what was the electoral tally? Adams got 65 votes and Thomas Jefferson got 73 votes. Which makes it sound a lot closer than it was. Uh, there, there's a lot of states like New York that had hit, hit a tipping point. Uh, Pennsylvania did as well. Those were federalist strongholds before. And for instance, this is the first time New York had voted for Democrat Republicans. Even uh, this is the last time that Vermont voted for the Federalists. Um, you know, this is going to be the last time we're ever going to see a Federalist president. The The actual election was pretty much going to go Jefferson. I mean, the writing was on the wall. Adams even knew. Adams fought pretty hard early on. He wanted it. And I think but towards the end of his presidency, he was just kind of resigned <laughs> to the fact that this was going to be his fate. But again, we got to go. The real story here happens with party discipline, where again, going back to what the Federalists stuck to their to their guns and they voted for Adams and Pinckney, Adams and Pinckney. But they corresponded via letter again, and they decided that one of the electors in Rhode Island would have a throwaway vote, and he voted for John Jay. And again, the point of that was that you would not have a tie between right. Adams and Pinckney. And, and then have to go to the House of Representatives. Now, did the Democratic Republicans have this, they, they had their their slate uh, of, of, elect, of yeah. the, their, I guess their party platform, their candidates were Jefferson as president and Aaron Burr as vice president. Yes. And there was no, Burr is, let's be nice, he's a weasel, right? And very I much, mean, very it, much an opportunist. Yeah, and he was brought in because he was a New York Democrat Republican. And he's a Northern Democratic Republican, but he had no, he knew his place. He knew where he was supposed to be. He corresponded with Jefferson and proclaimed his loyalty. But guess what? The Democratic Republicans did not have a quote unquote party discipline and had their own, did not throw away a vote. Correct. So it was a tie. 73 to 73. Yep. So you had uh, Adams coming in a distant third. And uh, because Aaron Burr and because the Democratic Republicans didn't didn't have a throwaway vote, we have a constitutional crisis. Well, not really, because it's <laughs> spelled out, but it's 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 a train wreck. 
Right, so the vote now heads to the House of Representatives, exactly. yeah. the old House of Representatives, exactly, which is a Federalist House. Mr. President, Mr. President, you honor me prematurely, sir. The House is still in deadlock. Oh, God grant they may soon reach a decision. A word from you would end the uncertainty. That is for the Congress to decide. I have no business in that matter. If the Federalist conspirators are allowed to defeat this election, there will be resistance by force, and the consequences could be incalculable. The outcome of this election is within your power. You have only to honor the national debt of which the Federalists hold dear, and the government will instantly be in your hands. I will not enter office, but in perfect freedom to follow the dictates of my own judgment. And then in that case, events must take their own course. And if you think about it, if you're th thinking of, of this as a Federalist congressman, you're like, okay, clearly Adams is done. He, he's not, we can't win this for, we can't win the election for uh, for Adams because our, our choices are now Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson. And you have to go back to how fast information was traveling at this point. You have Burr sitting in one state and, and you have Jefferson sitting in a different state. And Burr doesn't really know what's going on at this point, and they're corresponding. Jefferson Jefferson's constantly reaching out to Burr saying, we're good, right? We're good, yeah. right? And to that point, I mean, the election's in November of mm -hmm. 1800. Um, the House of Representatives doesn't get together and choose a president until February of 1801. Yeah. So that's five months. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's it, it, So Burr is, you know, he, he's kind of just... It, he's kind of just sitting, corresponding with Jefferson, saying, "Yes, I'm, I'm great with you." You know, blah blah mm -hmm. blah. And then, then the Weasley part of him kicks in, and he decides that, "Hey, you know, I, I may be able to, you know, I, I may be able to take this thing." And the reason he does this really is because the Federalists look at this as, "We're not going to get Adams in there, but we can get a deal." You know, there are things on the table that they stood to lose. They stood to lose their the central bank, they the standing army. They had federal um, they had federal appointees that they wanted to keep in place, and so they start the Federalists start corresponding with both of them, uh, with with Jefferson, with Burr, and Burr and and uh, Jefferson start corresponding with each other, and Burr starts getting more brazen and saying things. Well, I might be vice president if you give me you know the initiative and foreign policy or or you know mm -hmm. or the authority basically he wants to really expand the power of the vice presidency and jefferson is just kind of like dude come on man you were were you were you were cool with your role a while ago and the federalists the federalists are fully on board with it initially right. initially with with trying to muck things up because Fe thomas jefferson was the enemy of of the federalist cause right. and i mean alexander hamilton even though he is not on the ticket and his political career is pretty much dead he's still respected as the leader of the federalist party the yeah. federalists at this yeah. point and a lot of that activity happening in the background is from hamilton yeah and it's funny because out of all the everyone in the story pretty much hates Alexander Hamilton except for Burr. Him and even right. even five days before he shoots him, they have, they're at a dinner party together, and Burr gives him a toast. Absolutely, it, it, and, and it's it, it's hysterical. But Hamilton realizes the gig is up, and once he realizes the gig is up, he looks he looks at Burr, who he knows well. 
So Hamilton starts writing to the electors in favor of uh, Jefferson versus Burr, saying he'd rather support a man who has the wrong convictions than none at all. Yeah. So, so Hamilton decides that he's going to swing his his support to, to Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, but he wants to make sure he gets something out of it. Yeah, their their first vote goes eight for Jefferson, six for Burr, and two no no result. And that vote is the state. Yeah, the state. Uh, yeah, exactly. So each state gets one vote. So and that, and that that vote is concocted out of the delegation's vote. So for instance, in Maryland, you have a no result because you have eight total uh, delegates and. Uh, which are the members of the House of Representatives. So eight, uh, Maryland had eight representatives. They tied 4-4, four, four, so there's no result there. And so they needed nine to elect. They were deadlocked for the first 35 right. votes. And again, this is happening over five months. Votes. Over five months. Right. Uh, well, no, the voting didn't happen over five months. No, um, the voting happened over yeah, three days. Yeah, yeah, well, I think. But 35 votes, and it's tied... 35 times. Yeah, but so, but even before the, the votes are happening, this, all, the, all the politicking got us to this point where we're deadlocked out of the gate. Um, and Jefferson and Burr are going back and forth. They, they try to get John Adams involved. Uh, Jefferson famously makes a visit to, to John Adams and says, you know, just a word from you would really help me out here. And Adams says, look, I'm not going to endorse you, but if you are willing to make a deal, I, on keeping the Navy and, you know, keeping the bank, I think you'd, you'd be in good shape. And not firing Federalists who and, are working yes, exactly, for the government. Exactly. Really. I've seen multiple reports on this, and in my personal opinion, there, there's a lot of initial reports that said Burr wasn't going to make a deal. And my a personal opinion is that Burr was trying to make a deal as well. It was a situation where people respected Thomas Jefferson more, but the, and, and the, the Federalists house was corresponding with both but they really wanted they really wanted jefferson to to end up with the presidency and use burr as a a way to whip jefferson into a better posture so i mean as a result hamilton tells his federalist friends to vote for thomas jefferson yeah because of those promises now they don't necessarily vote for thomas jefferson they just don't vote yeah so so at this point the drama happens, it, and the first state is Maryland, which is split 4-4, which means no result. The same is for Vermont, which is 1-1. One, one one. Delaware is for Burr, but only has one representative. Uh, South Carolina has selected 3-1 to one in favor of Burr. And with, uh, with, with the goings back and forth, and Thomas Jefferson, I, I mean, Hamilton has done some correspondence, but Jefferson really seals the deal when he agrees that he's not going to change those things. And Maryland was tied. All four Burr vote, votes changed to no decision. So Jefferson gets Maryland's vote. And Vermont's one Burr vote goes undecided. And Jefferson gets Vermont's vote. And Delaware and South Carolina can't quite stomach completely flipping, but switch to no decision, taking both away from Burr. So it goes from eight to six to two to 10 to four to two. And Jefferson is elected. So we now have our new president. What are the immediate repercussions of Thomas Jefferson donning high office? So one thing, I guess a consequence, not necessarily a consequence, but a precedence, is when Thomas Jefferson takes over, there is a peaceful transfer of power. Now, 
this was the revolution of 1800. I mean, this was a dirty election. There were a lot of things said and very polarizing. It had very polarizing effects on the country and these parties. But after the election was done, a peaceful transfer of power was done from the Federalists to the, the Democratic Republicans. And that actually set a precedence that continues today. It, and I think you have to give them all pats on the back, given how high the stakes were at the time. I mean, we have some issues today, but at this point, we're, do we have a Navy? Do we have a, a central bank? You know, th- things like that. And there, there were some diabolical differences. And Thomas Thomas Jefferson kept his promises to Hamilton. Yeah, like you he said. Yep. He kept the bank. He kept a standing Navy. Yeah. Weekly Rally Register, 3rd March, 1801, Tuesday. To which the president-elect was pleased to make the following reply. I receive, gentlemen, with profound thankfulness, this testimony of confidence from the great representative council of our nation. It fills up the measure of that grateful satisfaction which had already been derived from the suffrages of my fellow citizens themselves, designating me as one of those to whom they were willing to commit this charge, the most important of all others to them. In deciding between the candidates whom their equal vote presented to your choice, I am sensible that age has been respected rather than more active and useful qualifications. I know the difficulties of the station to which I am called, and feel and acknowledge my incompetence to them. But whatsoever of understanding, whatsoever of diligence, whatsoever of justice, or of affectionate concern for the happiness of man, it has pleased Providence to place within the compass of my faculties, shall be called forth for the discharge of the duties confided to me, and for procuring to my fellow citizens all the benefits which our Constitution has placed under the guardianship of the general government. Adams decided that he was not going to go to Thomas Jefferson's inauguration. A lot of that is a lot of people saying uh, a lot of people make that out to him taking his ball and going home. <laughs> uh, he catches the 4 a.m. stagecoach out on Inauguration Day uh, and uh, and goes back to uh, to Peacefield. Um, I think part of him didn't want to see Jefferson inaugurated, but so his son had also recently died from alcoholism. And I think he was just kind of done and he wanted to, to go home. So I think it was 50-50. And a, and a lot of sources I've read have, have indicated that he wasn't as, I mean, you you had Jefferson visiting him before and, and kind of talking things through with him. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was that antagonistic towards Jefferson at that point, but I think he just kind of was done with it. You know, the other the other big outcome of this was a new amendment, the 12th Amendment that basically corrected the electoral issue yeah. and sent and changed it from two votes to one vote. So you vote for a president. And a vice president. And a vice president yeah. together. Well, and funny, going back to Inauguration Day before we move on to that, this was America's, America fell in love with Thomas Jefferson's pen, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they saw his writings, everything from the Declaration of Independence. Right. But he was a horrific, ferocious, ferocious, ferocious. He was an absolutely ferocious, atrocious, spe- atrocious speaker. <laughs> and uh, John Marshall ends up uh, administering the oath of office to Jefferson's back, and, and Jefferson's turned away from him. Right. And Jeff- and Jefferson, I don't know, but it was something else. But Jefferson ends up being very meek, and everyone kind of looks at each other afterwards like, this guy can barely talk in public. You know, and and you take a look at that, his inauguration speech on Mm -hmm. paper now, and it looks good, because he's, like you said, he had magic with the pen, but his delivery was terrible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
That being said, he did become one of the, the best presidents we've had. Friends and fellow citizens, called upon to undertake the duties of the first executive office of our country, I avail myself of the presence of that portion of my fellow citizens which is here assembled to express my grateful thanks for the favor with which they have been pleased to look toward me, to declare a sincere consciousness that the task is above my talents, and that I approach it with those anxious and awful presentiments which the greatness of the charge and the weakness of my powers so justly inspire. A rising nation, spread over a wide and fruitful land, traversing all the seas with the rich productions of their industry, engaged in commerce with nations who feel power and forget right, advancing rapidly to destinies beyond the reach of mortal eye. When I contemplate these transcendent objects and see the honor, the happiness, and the hopes of this beloved country committed to the issue and auspices of this day, I shrink from the contemplation and humble myself before the magnitude of the undertaking. The Federalist Party is dead. The, the Democrat-Republicans take every election until 1828 when Andrew Jackson wins as a just a Democrat. Uh, the the party splits off at that at that point. There was the things like the corrupt bargain in the previous election right. with John Quincy. Um, but so you mentioned the Twelfth Amendment. Uh, that that was a big deal. We won't have that uh, that again. He keeps the bank. Napoleon is fighting a war in. I, forget, I think it was against the Second Coalition at this point, but I'm not sure. Uh, he's sick of of having to maintain a colony in the United States and comes to Jefferson and says, well. Not to Jefferson, but to the United States, and and uh, and offers to sell the land to us. And Jefferson, this would have been a move that Jefferson himself, during Washington's administration and during Adams' administration, he would have looked, he would have raised his ire and called this tyranny, monarchism. But he basically, I give him a lot of credit for this because he saw a great deal, mm-hmm. and he also, and he goes for, he goes forward with it. Interestingly enough. He parcels the land out and funds his his first two uh, two terms plus Madison's term yeah. with with, uh, with the proceeds from parceling out the land uh, of the Louisiana Purchase. So very fiscally uh, prudent. The Purchase doubles the size of the United States. Yeah. So we have Jefferson as president, and he's going to go and double the size of the United States. What are, what happens to the other principal actors in the election of, of 1800 afterwards? I, I guess I guess I'll take Adams. Um, so a- Adams retires to Peacefield. He kind of becomes a farmer, and, and he is actually the only one who ends up with money. Uh, you know, and and dies with money. Yeah, uh, his peace feels. I mean, Thomas great. Jefferson lives the lifestyle of a king. He must have been fun to party with. Yeah, he must have been a lot of fun to party with. So these guys are. It's not super enmity, but they really uh, their friendships broken. I mean, they were dear friends early during the revolution and up up to their uh, up to their time in politics together. In 1812, they reconcile and start writing letters to each other. Jefferson's out of office at this point, and, and uh, through, a, through a friend, someone suggests to Adams that, that he reach out to Jefferson and start and you know start a correspondence, and they do. 
1812, they start writing letters back and forth to each other. And Adams basically, the, the quote was, we need to explain ourselves to each other. And they do, all the way up to 1826. They both, uh, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. They both die on July 4th, 1826. The 50th anniversary yes, of the, the Declaration yeah, of I mean, Independence. You, you, you can't make this stuff up. Right. Um, and uh, Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson dies first in the morning, <laughs> and Adams dies in the evening around six o'clock. And his last word were, words were, Thomas Jefferson survives, which obviously he, he would have had no way of knowing. But should have just um, emailed him. Yeah, exactly. But but in the interim, Thomas. So so John uh, John Adams had also had his son John Quincy Adams, who might have been one of the best statesmen ever. I, I, I mean, he served in in Russia and you know multiple yeah. different posts and um you know he, he got to see his son be the president of the united states as well and then you know george washington had had been had faded out i mean when, after his second term he had kind of in a uh in a ceremonial retired yeah in a in a ceremonial capacity agreed to be the head of chief, commander of chief of the war should the quasi war actually turn into a shooting war with France, uh, but that would have really been Alexander Hamilton at the at the head of the army with with uh, George Washington as a figurehead. He he had died uh, pretty pretty shortly after his term ended. Uh, James Madison obviously becomes president of the United States. Yeah, I mean we we touched on Thomas Jefferson, but he um, he becomes the third president. Um, he has two terms. Again, he's known as one of the best presidents we've had. He is. Once his terms are up, he retires, truly retires, <laughs> to Montecito, or Mon- Monticello, sorry. Montecito, isn't, isn't yeah. that a fish taco place yeah. in California? <laughs> <laughs> Once his terms are up, he permanently retires to Monticello um, and begins the life of a, a retired president. Living a full life, um, living a extravagant life, not necessarily having the means to live that life. Right, right. So, so he dies... Um, a poor man in a giant mansion. Yes, yeah. the way you could say it. James Monroe uh, becomes president as well. Uh, the fifth president. And gives us the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, mm-hmm. Keep out of our hemisphere, uh, foreign empires. Now we get to the juicy stuff. Alexander Hamilton in 1804. Again, he's he's in New York. So Alexander Hamilton is still. A, a big presence in the Federalist cause. Um, he's writing a lot of pamphlets, uh, and and he really just can't help himself. Uh, what, what a lot of people don't know about him is that he, yeah, he died with a duel with Burr, but I think that was his 11th duel. And it's important to go into dueling a little bit at this point. A, a duel is basically, a lot of them are, are there's, someone has insulted another, another challenges them to a duel. You go to a, a remote place across a river. In this case, it was uh, the, the, the key duel was across the Hudson in New Jersey. And you have the opportunity to apologize. And if, if no apologies happen, then you a lot of times you'll have what's called give up your, your first shot, which is you'll shoot in the air instead of shooting at your opponent. And then you can still say, do you really want to apologize? And most of the, the duels are, are resolved that way. But uh, Hamilton and Burr have a falling out, and they're they're both stubborn, stubborn gentlemen. And there there was a lot there's a lot written about this, and we're not going to get into this now. This is a different podcast, but it's generally agreed that Hamilton shot first, close enough to Burr where he thought he was actually in danger, 
Um, and so Burr was well within his rights to shoot it by the dueler's code to, and, and not dueling was not legal in every state. So they had to cross the river to get to New Jersey New because Jersey. it was illegal in New York. Of course it's, of course it's legal in New Jersey. Of course, you know, Hey, we got to do what you got to do. Right. Um, so Burr was well within his rights to then shoot Hamilton, which he did. And, uh, Hamilton dies, I think three or four days later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Aaron Burr continues. Oh, <laughs> Man, this guy's, um, this guy's a hot mess. Immediately, yes. Immediately after the duel, um, Aaron, Beer, Aaron Burr f- fears that he's going to be arrested for killing Alexander Hamilton. The Sprig of Liberty, 27 July, 1804, Friday. The accounts respecting the affair of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, Esquire's, are so contradictory that we cannot possibly determine which is correct. They all agree, however, that Mr. Hamilton was wounded and died of the wound. But as to the occasion of the duel, not two of them agree. Some say the intrigue at the presidential election. Others say a piece which was published at Albany and republished at New York, in which it was said Burr was a dangerous man. And it is further said without reference to either, that the cause was political. Mr. Burr's second is said to be W.P. Van Ness, Esquire, Mr. Hamilton's Judge Pendleton, and Dr. Hossack, his physician. He ends up going to trial for the murder of Alexander Hamilton. He is acquitted, so he doesn't go to jail, but his reputation is tarnished. He's really not welcome in America anymore. Well, keep in mind, he's the vice president for Thomas Jefferson at this point. He came in, he officially came in yes. second in the election. That's, about, that's a great point. So he's, he's Jefferson's vice president and, and Jefferson is just so had it with this guy. And he, well, and why did he get tried for treason? Yeah, so he basically had started speculating in land, in, uh, in land uh, as, as far as Texas and possibly dabbling in starting a republic and as a sitting vice president, that's not the message you want to be right. sending. And it's illegal. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, so Thomas Jefferson kind of has it. And, uh, you know, Aaron Burr gets off mm. and, and is really shamed. I mean, his, his republic, his, his political life is over at this point. He flees to Europe, actually. No, Chile. Europe. Uh, really? Yeah. He has relatives that live in Chile. Oh. He flees to Europe. Okay. To try to regain his fortunes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not very successful. He actually changes his name, his last name, so he's more anonymous in Europe. Um, he ends up marrying a rich widow who's 20 years younger than him. Um, and is, is when she realizes a couple years after they're married that he's spending all of her fortune and losing it, she divorces him quickly. Um, so he really, after that, he really spends the rest of his life kind of in in quiet solitude and dies a poor man. Gentlemen, thank you for taking us through the election of 1800. Uh, But Matt, you're new to 10 American elections. Um, Just for the sake of listeners, who the dickens are you? Um, Thanks, Royfield. Um, I live in Colorado here in the US. Um, I am an IT professional. And in my spare time, I like to read Wikipedia, and um, Adam and I also do a random um, American Moments podcast that really covers anything from, like, Nintendo to 
Well, we're, we we did uh, the jungle by Upton right. Sinclair, and uh, the next one's going to be about the Johnstown flood uh, in in uh, 1889. So we're going to be cutting that one uh, hopefully next week. So de- definitely check it out if uh, if you uh, haven't already. Fantastic, and Adam. Uh, what have you been doing since uh, we recorded Grant all those months ago? Well, I, I, you know, a lot of it's been American moments. I've, I've really learned to appreciate the amount of work it takes to edit a show. I, I don't know how you do this as much as you do it. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, but, but it's been great being on the show before with you because it's really driven the style of American moments. You know, with audio clips and things like that. And and there's there's shows as you know, like The Jungle, where there were, there, are, there are no audio clips really uh, that that you can really bring to bear. But it just adds a lot of color, and, and the show's very similar in style. Um, and, and I'm really having a lot of fun with it. Um, but, uh, you know, besides that, uh, you know, just trying to stay afloat. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, uh, as I said before, thank you for taking us through the election of 1800. Dear listener, you can follow us on Twitter where we are 10USP.com. If you want to follow us on Facebook and join our group of some five, 600 like lurkers, you can do that by typing in um, 10 American presidents into Facebook. If you want to send me an email, you can. Quite simply, I'm Royfield, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. If you'd like to show your appreciation for our good works here you can join us on patreon and pledge a certain sum of money each time we do a podcast to help keep the servers afloat so to speak and then lastly could you please uh, send us um, a nice review on on itunes that's the best way for all podcasts to get a little bit of traction in the apple itunes charts that's been me, Royfield, with new friend Matt and with old friend Adam at 10 American Elections, which is part of the 10 American President series. See you all again next month for another show.